Albinism is a genetic condition. There are many different forms of albinism. So I think people are most used to thinking when they think albinism of people with no pigment in their hair and skin and eyes. So they have the lightest blue eyes and white hair. Um, but there are many different forms of albinism and some of them just mean they have hypopigmentation or less pigmentation than they would have had otherwise. My daughter Ruth, for instance, has light brown eyes and she has blonde hair but it's not white and she has very light skin but what makes all of these different forms of albinism what they all have in common even though they have varying levels of hypopigmentation or appearance uh, is visual impairment welcome to intersection i am bobby ratu storyteller you know i don't know that i would say that i've always wanted to work with children, uh, but I will say, so I've been interested in children for a long time, and obviously, like a lot of people, um, I volunteered with children when I was in high school and when I was in college. Uh, after college, I became a middle school teacher, and so one thing that's interesting about adolescence at that age is um, coming out of being a child, and so they have these adolescent ideas and they have an idea of what they want to be and who they want to be like and things they want to accomplish, but they don't quite have the skills to make those things happen. And whether those are, you know, social skills or emotional self-control, they just, they don't quite have it. And so it's just a really frustrating time of life for them. But what I had to learn was I really had to learn to love them for who they were and what they were going through instead of just thinking like, this is the time you just plug your nose and deal with them. I mean, I was there every day. And so I really, it was a huge challenge. It was um, a turnaround school in Maryland, so one of the lowest 5% of the schools in, in the state. And just, we had a lot of struggles at that school. But um, I really came to love them for who they were. And I learned how to ask them questions and have them talk about themselves and really get them to come out of their shell and show who they really were. And so I think, although I had had a lot of experience with kids before that, I think that was when I really started to truly love them because, I mean, you can say you love kids, but you don't love kids until they are annoying you every single day and you're still showing up and you're still giving them your best. So middle schoolers taught me to love children. All you have to do is Google Andrea Kinghorn Busby and you realize she is one smart lady. She's a doctoral student in Northwestern University's Human Development and Social Policy Program and a fellow through the Multidisciplinary Program and Education Sciences Training Program. Her research focuses on using ecological frameworks to understand the intersection of home and school environments and their impacts on children's development, especially among families from low-income, immigrant, or ethnic minority backgrounds. Andrea is also a mother, a mother to a child who has a very special disability. Her daughter Ruth is albino, and this genetic trait impacts more than her skin pigmentation. It impacts what she can see. What we see is the unique intersection in this story. What we see is Andrea and Ruth look completely different, and Ruth requires special attention during this critical time in her life. The special attention created barriers for Andrea 
to find specialized childcare after relocating to the Anderson-Clemson area of South Carolina. Andrea's research combined with her child's differing abilities has done more than empower this mother to advocate for the best possible care for her child. It has literally opened eyes to how one child care facility called DCEC is creating space for something special to happen. Roost development has exploded. Here is their story. Part of what drove me into being, it's going back to school to be a researcher. Uh, I will say this, first of all, prior to becoming a teacher, I had been involved in research, very interested in research and really enjoyed doing it. Um, I've, I think I've been a thinker for a lot of my life. Uh, I'm multiracial and so, um, my mother's African-American and my father is white. And I've just had a lot of experiences of observing the world and interesting interactions between people of different uh, groups. And um, so it was a part of my life and I enjoyed just thinking about things and making sense of the world. And so I knew I wanted to do that. And I told my research advisor, you know, I really love research and I wanna do it, but I think there's a lot of you know, smart people out there doing research, but there aren't a lot of people who have experience working with people and who really understand people, because I think you can understand people on an intellectual level, and I think you can also understand the heart of communities, what makes them tick and what their challenges are, and what's on paper is important, but that's not the only thing that's important about a community. And so I really wanted to go and work with the people that I loved, my people, and... Um, Who are your people? <laughs> my people. I would say... Um, people of color, people who've experienced that world. So that may not be, uh, you know, fully my experience as a, as a lighter-skinned person who grew up with a lot of advantages in Minnesota, but... Um, Going back, I would say I'm very connected to my family history. I really know my roots and where I came from. My daughter, Ruth, is named after my grandmother, who I have a lot of respect for, and she's... Uh, I love Ruth, by the way. I, yeah, the name Ruth or I love it. <laughs> my child, Ruth? Well, <laughs> I've just met your child, but <laughs> the name Ruth is an awesome... It's a it wise is. name. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's an old soul name. Yes, it is. And uh, so... What is interesting to you about communities? Maybe, yeah. maybe let's take that and let's talk about specifically about your research. What is your yeah. research? So, I do research on children's social context of development. Um, my research right now is primarily in early childhood years, uh, mostly between the ages of three and five, although I do have a little bit of research in middle childhood. Um, and Particularly when I say that I do research on the social context of development, I do research on the intersections of those contexts. So how do home and school environments work together or against each other to influence development or schools and neighborhoods or home and school? Uh, I also look at the policy context of development. So how do the policies, whether they be you know, at a national level or at a more local level, influence um, the context of development and what that means for children? And within that, I have a focus on um, children from low-income backgrounds, from ethnic minority 
uh, minoritized families. And uh, so I do a lot of really interesting research. I'm happy to talk more about it. I, I could talk about it all day Basically, long. Basically, how did you balance all this research and all this knowledge mm-hmm. and all this experience and then you found out you're going to have a child mm-hmm. and your husband, what racial ethnicity is your husband? My husband's uh, white. Your husband's white. Mm-hmm. You're half white, half mm-hmm. black. And then you all of a sudden find out you're going to have a kid and you're so excited and that child comes out and you said the moment that you saw her, Ruth, she had blonde hair, and you're like, what in the world is going on? Yes. So Did that challenge every predisposition? <laughs> well, <laughs> I was surprised. I did not think that I would have a blonde child um, for obvious reasons, just genetically. What are the obvious reasons? Let's just list the obvious <laughs> reasons. Just the brown hair is more dominant. So you, I'm gonna just if I have dark hair, you have dark, dark hair, eyes, you have dark eyes, you have dark some eyelashes, brown, light brown skin. Yep, you almost have more of a um, uh, Latino mm-hmm. coloring. So to have a fair-skinned child, mm-hmm. very fair-skinned, very very fair, and super blonde hair. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like me and my wife, who had a daughter. Her name is Rose. Mm-hmm. Who both of us have straight dark hair, mm-hmm. and she has the absolute curliest hair known to band. Right, right. And I walk into church, and they're like, "How did that happen? Where did it come from?" I said, "Oh, I must have been the mailman." Right. You know <laughs> that type of thing. But right, right. How did you digest that? Because you are a researcher, and you're a thinker, yes. and you probably went into thirty different places thinking through that. On a personal level, I've had a variety of experiences in my life. I have friends of best friends, very close friends of uh, many different races. And I mean, I was multiracial growing up. That was my experience was with a lot of different people. Um, But I've also had, you know, some hurtful and negative interactions. And um, so I think obviously part of my job is thinking well, maybe it's not obvious, but part of my job is really thinking about um, how do we, when we think about social policies, there are various goals that different social policies have, and many goals, many social policies have the goal of creating a more just and equitable society, particularly many of the social policies with young children, so things like Head Start or other things that really strive to give all children an an equal footing in life. And um, it's really important to me that my child has, you know, advantages in life. Just like all parents, I want to give my child all that I can give her. And I also want to have a just and equitable society. And um, I think that is something that I navigate with a child who is blonde and honestly very well loved. People are frequent, every day that I go out with her, people are commenting on how beautiful and blonde she is. And she is beautiful and she is coincidentally blonde. Um, So 
it's me trying to navigate for my child that she is beautiful and she is blonde and there's many ways to be beautiful in this world and I, I'm navigating that so well let, let's let's dive a little bit deeper <laughs> as a part of your child your beautiful child Ruth being albino mm -hmm. her vision has she is visually impaired mm -hmm. let's talk about that because that kind of comes into the equal yes. access mm -hmm. right and as a describe yep. to me what does it mean to be albino so, with the with what is her differing ability so i'll say this albinism is a genetic condition there are many different forms of albinism so i think people are most used to thinking when they think albinism of people with no pigment in their hair and skin and eyes so they have the lightest blue eyes and white hair. Um, but there are many different forms of albinism, and some of them just mean they have hypopigmentation or less pigmentation than they would have had otherwise. So uh, my daughter Ruth, for instance, has light brown eyes, um, and she has blonde hair, but it's not white, and she has very light skin. Um, so, uh, but what makes all of these different forms of albinism, what they all have in common, even though they have varying levels of hypopigmentation or appearance, uh, is visual impairment. So they all involve some form of visual impairment, um, pigmentation or melanin, and the eyes is important to the development of the eye, and so they're not exactly sure why, but it involves um, the optic nerve is slightly different for people in albinism. They have some issues with depth perception. Um, they're sensitive to the light, so it's called photophobia. Uh, they also usually um, are nearsighted or farsighted. And um, what's Ruth's situation? Let's talk specifics here. Yeah. So Ruth uh, specifically has about. We just went to the ophthalmologist today. Her vision, she has about negative four is her prescription. And then she also has nystagmus, so her eyes have constant uncontrollable eye movements. And basically what that means is, um, you know, there's a part in the back of your eye called the fovea where you have a higher concentration of rods and cones. It's the most clearly focused point of your vision, which is why when you directly look at something, you can see it more clearly and the things out of the corner of your eye are not as clear. And so for her, her eye is constantly moving. So that point of clearest vision is constantly moving just a little bit, which makes it more difficult to see. Um, and then she also has a little bit of depth perception issues and astigmatism. So, so how did you end up in Anderson, South Carolina? Uh, we ended up in Anderson, South Carolina because my husband and I were both graduate students at Northwestern University in Chicago, and um, he was further along in the program than I was and graduated and has a job in at Clemson University. And when you came here, you had to find a place that could provide the equal access that you needed mm -hmm. and the care that you needed mm -hmm. and the love that you needed. Right. Talk about that search and looking for that place 
when we were looking for a place uh, to put Ruth in for childcare here, I called around to different um, childcare centers. I did some research and I called to the ones that I thought would be my favorite. And at that time, I thought that we would be living in Clemson. So I called some that were closer to the Clemson area. And I remember I called one of them and I said, uh, we're moving there. My daughter, she has a visual impairment and my daughter has a visual impairment and you know, have you ever had a child that has a visual impairment? How would you handle that? And the woman said, well, how much of a visual impairment is it? I said, well, I don't know. She's young and her vision will change over time. And, and she said, well, we've never had a child like that. Is she going to need special help? Is she going to need another adult? And I said, I really, you know, don't know what she's going to need right now. It's not severe visual impairment. It's only a moderate. And she said, well, I just wouldn't want her running out in the street, <laughs> which is funny because, you know, all toddlers are running out in the street. And I'm thinking, I hope you have a fence around that playground. But anyways, the, the point was not whether or not my daughter was going to run in the street, but the attitude of the person I was speaking to is so negative <laughs> about my child and what she would mean and sounded like she felt like I didn't think my daughter was going to be a problem honestly when I asked the question I was thinking you know large print books or something like that like can she sit close to the teacher uh, but I wanted to hear what she had to say and it was really telling to me that she really went to a negative place first and asked a lot of questions kind of in the negative place and and didn't uh, think to go anywhere else with it and I just thought I feel really uncomfortable having my daughter there and you know we have thank goodness uh, you know there's a lot of government policies that deal with Americans with disabilities and help them to uh, be included and accommodated but I think obviously we want our children to be accommodated but we want them to be accommodated because people joyfully want to accommodate our children to help them succeed and not because they are being forced to accommodate our child by the law and so I really was looking for somewhere else to take my child who would be happy to take my lovely daughter <laughs> and um, I called DCEC. How'd you find DCEC? So this is so because I'm a researcher and um, <laughs> there's a thing called the QRIS and basically there's school accountability system for K through 12 that we know about standardized testing well, many states are also doing accountability systems for preschool and early childhood education. And so one exists for the state of South Carolina, and I looked it up online. So I was thinking, there's a lot of, you know, there's pluses and minuses to QRIS. The jury's still out on, on it, and they're not all created equal, but I thought it was a good place to start. And um, DCEC actually has an A+, plus, or did when I looked at it. So I thought, what is this place? DCEC with an A+. Plus. I want to send my daughter to the A+. Plus <laughs> but, you know, when I, I live in Anderson and <coughs> little Anderson, South Carolina, mm -hmm. and I use that southern twang because we are a southern town. Yes. I mean. You know, you ride downtown and there's a Confederate monument. I, I'm aware. <laughs> you know, and when you, we are in the quote unquote, this DCEC is located in the low income side of town. Yes. Where they're trying to revitalize. Yeah. In the West Side Community Center, where you ride around just 
less than 100 yards and half the building has fallen apart. But there's this beautiful gym and this would be located that grants equal access to children with all differing abilities. What is going on? Yeah, and this is a side note, but it has to do with my research. You may be surprised to know that part of the research that I've been involved in is we do Google Street View and we walk around the neighborhood surrounding early childhood centers and we scored on all sorts of things. So the quality of the sidewalks and the quality of the playground and the building and and we rate it. And so I remember I did Google Street View on DCC and like you said, the the building is part of the building on the other side is it's like broken glass and I thought, wow, this would really score low on our you know, walk around, but yet I also knew that while the surrounding area around a school is important, I also knew that what is going on inside the school is the most important. And when I called DCEC, although I had not physically been here, I had walked around, but I hadn't physically been here, um, it was just night and day, the difference. Talking to the director of DCEC, I told her I had a daughter with visual impairment. She said, oh, yes, you know, Definitely, we could do that. She said, do you have a pediatrician in town? Do you have an ophthalmologist? Let me give you recommendations about pediatricians who work well with children with disabilities in the area. Let me give you recommendations for ophthalmologists. Oh, your daughter sounds wonderful. You know, we'd be so happy to have her here. We could definitely accommodate her. And just the complete and total difference in attitude about accommodating my daughter and also just being proactive and helping me out, knowing that we were moving here was just, I knew I had to send her here. There's no question. How do you describe equity in your work? What does it mean to be equitable mm-hmm. and equitable across all people? So, um, you know, we think of, oftentimes when people use the word equity or equality, they use them interchangeably, right? Uh, but I don't use them interchangeably. When I say equitable, I mean we want all children to succeed, and so that may mean giving different things to different children. It doesn't mean giving the same thing to every child. It means giving every child what they need to succeed, so essentially going for the, the same outcome. And uh, I think, honestly, that's like part of the core of what DCEC is about and I know that a lot of child care centers are honest they're businesses so they're trying to make money so having an extra person or having to spend time doing something different for a different child is hurting their bottom line and you know that is the state of child care in the United States right now but uh, that wasn't what I wanted for my daughter so I wanted a place that wasn't going to send that message to her at a, at a young age. How has Ruth changed her work or has it or empowered your work even more, yeah. empowered your research even more? And have you found more questions because of her? Early in Ruth being diagnosed with, initially Ruth was diagnosed with nystagmus and uh, it was called idio, idiopathic nystagmus, which basically just means we have no idea why your daughter has nystagmus. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a frustrating diagnosis to say the least. Um, so it's like, 
since we have no idea why she has nystagmus, we have no idea how bad it'll be. We have no idea what to do about it. Um, so we're going through a lot of unknowns. And then I am not an expert in child er, in language development, but I have a lot of friends who are experts in language development, and I've heard a lot of their their talks. And so, you know, I'm above average in my knowledge of early childhood language development. And one thing that I know about early childhood language development is how much of the research is about babies before they can talk, observing the world around them, and um, just watching adults use language and then using what they see later on. And so I remember we were working with various um, people in Chicago where we used to live. Um, and I said, my daughter was six months old, and I said, I'm kind of concerned about her language development. And the woman laughed at me and said, she can't talk. She's only six months old. And so I was dealing with these feelings of, I respect other people as professionals, but also I have a legitimate concern about language development and I don't want to seem, I don't want to be the person that goes in and says, well, I know more than you. <laughs> uh, but first of all, I'm her mother. And second of all, I know a lot about this topic and I feel like I should be taken seriously. And I just felt really early on I felt like a lot of my concerns, I think people have a hard time, they don't know how to deal with the sadness that comes when your child first, for some people when their child first is diagnosed with a disability and it's not, I'm at a different place now than I was then, but it's just a lot of unknowns and, and a lot of concerns, but I guess what I'm saying is a lot of people wanted to take my legitimate concerns that I had because I knew a lot about the topic, and their first reaction was to minimize or deny my concerns. Um, to say, like, I'm concerned about her language development. Well, blind people know how to talk, so she'll be fine. Or just things that are just minimizing the concerns that I had. And, you know, there was never a time in which I thought, my child's never going to learn how to read, and she's going to be, I don't know sitting on a couch and she can't have a job or something. I, I was never in a place where I thought that was going to be my concern, but I felt like people were treating me as though that was where I wanted was, and I wanted to have intellectual conversations, and I wanted to understand what was going on and what the possible implications might be and to take my developmental knowledge and say, well, my issue was I know about the normal trajectory you know, I'm using air quotations, <laughs> the, the normal trajectory of development for children. I use air quotations because all children, this is the average, but nobody's really the average. So I know about that trajectory, but I don't know what it means for children who are visually impaired since most children are using their vision to learn language, and that's so much of what we know. How is my daughter going to learn language. What can I do as a parent? How should I adjust the way I interact with her? Because honestly, most parents just talk to their children and play games and kids learn language. Great. What do I do? How do I make sense of this? And I think people weren't used to having someone who wanted so much information and who wanted to understand it in that way. 
and they couldn't give me they couldn't give me what I wanted to know and it was frustrating well I I think what I learned about your story that I think is so awesome and fascinating is that you kept on asking questions right. and you kept on going to another person to ask questions and then you kept on asking so many questions to so many people you found someone that was willing just to put glasses on her and that changed everything what was that like the moment when you had all these questions and you knew that it was possible and someone answer your questions with more opportunity was that cool so cool and so it was so it was great because i had these concerns and i didn't feel like something was right and it's hard when you feel like something's not right and professionals are telling you it is right but do you think but it's not and so anyways going to the ophthalmologist here and pretty early on in the appointment she said oh yeah she has albinism i looked in her eyes she definitely has albinism and uh, she definitely needs glasses, which my last ophthalmologist had said she does not need glasses. And so, you know, it was just, I would say that that was a great feeling to see my daughter have glasses on and to... What happened next? When she put glasses on, what changed? Yeah, so it wasn't like... It wasn't immediate, but yeah, things started it, yeah, happening. Yeah, it wasn't like immediate, but, you know, within a day, so... She was about a year old. She's still army crawling. She wasn't pushing up. And part of, you know, the early stage of um, That's okay. infant development is called sensory motor development. Right. And, I, and I always wondered, you know, sensory motor. I mean, I understood it on an intellectual level, but it's because children are learning through moving and through their senses so much in the early right. years. And so what I didn't fully appreciate was she couldn't, or she could push up, but she wasn't getting an advantage in sight from pushing up. So most children start to push up because they realize they can push up and then they can see farther and they can do more. And she wasn't getting an advantage from that. So she was still army crawling around and she had, you know, rolled over late and done a lot of things late because she just wasn't having the motivation from vision that most children have. And she got those glasses and she immediately started, I mean, that same day, started pushing up because now all of a sudden she was getting an advantage from pushing up on her hands to she crawl. Because she could see. And, um, you know, from there, she really started to just progress physically and get to a better place. I mean, she's still a little bit behind, but compared to, you know, what was going on before, it just made a huge difference. And I'll say that, honestly, the biggest thing that made a difference for me was joining the National Organization for Albinism and Hypopigmentation and their support for parents. Because it's people who have the same concerns as you. No one thinks you're crazy that you have these concerns. And they have a book That's awesome. that answers the questions that I had that no one else was really answering for me. So what is your when you, you talk to other moms, <laughs> what is your message to them? Is it just to keep asking questions? One of the most difficult parts of my journey was I just want to go into the doctor's appointment and I just want to be really nice. And I'm from Minnesota and we're so nice. And I just want to subtly say something or I want to not subtly say something, but have a concern. And I want you to say, oh, wow, you're such a nice Minnesota person. You wouldn't have brought up this concern unless it was a real concern for you. I just, I wanted it to be just nice, 
interaction where people just immediately took me seriously. I didn't have to advocate for my child. It just, everything came smoothly and it was really hard for me to say, I might have to you know, stop someone and say, no, you didn't really deal with my concern or I still have a concern. Um, it was really hard for me to do that. And then I, I really had to take the reins because I was also a first time mother, but saying, you know, I'm the parent here and it's my job to advocate for her. And part of being a parent is like, if I don't advocate for her, no one will. Um, you know, she won't be able to see, she won't have these things. And really just me coming into my role as an advocate, me taking the time to learn my child, to see, you know, almost to be a mini scientist in your own home. So you're seeing, you know, what works well for her, what doesn't work well for her, when does she have uh, challenges, when does she not have challenges, and really understanding that and bringing that to the table. And a lot of medical professionals and other professionals really believe that parents have an important role and are you know, some would say the most important players in the game. And some don't believe that. And um, they may think they believe it, but they have a hard time practicing uh, putting parents first, teaching parents about their child's uh, condition rather than just dealing with the child directly. Um, it's not a perfect world. I, ha I still have interactions with professionals where I feel like they're not taking me seriously and it honestly concerns me greatly because I think if you aren't taking me seriously you can't be taking any parents seriously because I'm months away from having a PhD in child development. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.